always bring it back at any phase, at any stage. What do I want? What are my goals? What are all the options available to achieve those goals? Not for all time, just for this next stage. And which ones seem the most likely to help me move forward? And be really honest about that. And it's usually what creeps in is what will other people think of me? And when you're acting based on that and you raise kids up to act on that early in their life, their whole life is going to be that way. And that's a hellish way to live. Hello and welcome to the Hannah Franklin podcast. I'm your host. And on today's episode, I'm speaking with Isaac Morehouse. This is a particularly fun episode for me because Isaac is the founder of Praxis, the startup apprenticeship program that I worked for after I graduated from high school when I decided to skip college and was breaking into the startup world. I basically spent what would have been my college years working for Isaac at Praxis. Praxis is a year-long startup apprenticeship program that helps young people land jobs as apprentices, doing roles like sales, marketing, operations, customer success, at startups to get real-world business experience instead of taking the normal route of going and getting a degree. And working for Praxis was a really formative experience for me in my own journey of breaking into the education world, not just as somebody who is being independently educated, but as somebody who is actually working in the space, getting real-world experience. So it was super fun to have Isaac on the show and to get to catch up with him talk to him about all things education. Isaac is extremely knowledgeable. He's also probably one of the staunchest advocates and most rebellious advocates I know for bucking the system in all areas of life, not just with K-12 education, not just with college, but with careers and lifestyle in general. He's such a proponent of taking the path that is most meaningful to you and living a life on your terms, not somebody else's. And that is one of the many themes that we touch on in today's interview. Isaac and I talk about his experience growing up homeschooled. We talk about his experience as a second generation homeschooling parent, unschooling his own four kids. We talk about some of the myths around homeschooling and who has the resources and the means to homeschool. We talk about whether or not different alternative modalities of education actually are just for the privileged or if that's a completely bunk myth. We talk about his experience building Praxis. We talk about what he learned working with countless startup founders, successful entrepreneurs, about what it takes to be successful in the real world and how he distilled that back down into building a curriculum for the startup apprenticeship program. We talk about why it's important for entrepreneurial young people to learn things like philosophy and history and economics if they're trying to land a sales role. And we talk about how to cultivate things like work ethic and intellectual curiosity in your kids and what it means to live a life on your own terms and to define for yourself what the metrics of success are both for yourself in your life, but also in the education of your kids as a prerequisite for their life, and why sometimes the things that the system or the status quo are telling you are important actually aren't important at all. This was a really deep conversation. We went down a lot of different rabbit holes, and I'm very excited to share it with you all. 
One quick request before we get into the meat of the interview today. If you've been enjoying the show and you're listening on Spotify or Apple, if you could take a moment to leave me a rating, that would be greatly appreciated. I'm hoping to break 100 five-star ratings on both Apple and Spotify. The more ratings I have, the more legit the show looks. The more legit the show looks, the easier it is to land awesome guests. The more awesome guests I land, the better conversations I can facilitate for all of you to listen to. So if you take a moment, you'll see the little star icon up at the top of the page on whatever platform you're listening, Spotify, Apple. If you just click that, You'll be able to leave a rating. It'll only take a moment. And it's very much appreciated to help get the show off the ground and help bring better guests in for future episodes. Thank you so much. And without any further ado, Isaac Morehouse. I, can, I will not do a solo mustache. The fact that you called it a mustache, now I, gotta, I feel like I need to go shave right now. It looked like just regular stubble, but then you turned and when you from like from the side angle, like the way the oh. light hits it, it just looks darker on the top. I was supposed to shave today and I just have been like in meetings all day long and just ignored it. So great. Now you now I'm all insecure. Great way to start it off, Hannah. <laughs> do you want to take a second? Should we hit pause and you go? <laughs> no, let's do it. We're go we're going in. It's we're keeping it real. You just Bad you look like hair and all. You look like a like a battle tested startup founder. Like you just look like you've been in the trenches for a few days. That's like, who's, who's better. That? That's a that's a good recovery. Yeah, I was going for like Viking. You know what I mean? So yeah, we'll, we'll take it. Yeah, you're you're out busy conquering. You don't have time for things like personal shaving. It's hygiene. Either, <laughs> it's either that or you're doing the Top Gun thing. Like it's one or the other. But we'll. Yeah. No, I'm not. I'm not, anything that's re, like remotely related to being cool or trendy or intentional about uh, fashion or style is not uh, what I'm doing. So it's kind of <laughs> like uh, homeless, homeless chic da dad core. My kids call it. So you know. I don't think that's fair though, because I feel like dad core is more like you've got your your sneakers. And you've got your like, I don't know, like your your shorts that are just kind of like very generic. I got these at Costco kind of vibes. And I feel like your style is much more, I don't even know what the right words are, but you're like jeans and flip-flops and t-shirt. And that doesn't feel dad core to me. That just feels like I just like, this is comfortable and it's like cool in a nonchalant way. Okay, like I thank feel you. Like you I'll, know I'll deep tell my kids that. I mean, in fairness... I will wear whatever my wife brings. So like she has brought me shorts from Costco before and I'll just wear them, whatever. And then I just want, t I want free t-shirts from people that I know and, and companies that I like. So that's why today I'm wearing my John Galt mortgage t-shirt. So mm -hmm. uh, I know you had Tim on the show. Yeah, Tim, if you're listening, I was your first customer. That's why I'm wearing this shirt, which is why Hannah and I decided you should be the first sponsor of this podcast. I think it only makes sense. So I'm just going to put that out there. I'm going to make a clip just of this section and send it to Tim. I'm going to be like, yeah. you should totally listen to the Isaac podcast. Like just the first couple minutes. That's all you need. Yeah, um, totally. I feel like it's such an honor to be the first. Like, I don't just want him to be my first sponsor. I want to be the first podcast he sponsors. Like that's, that's my yes. objective. I need to be yeah. cool enough for him to sponsor me before he's ready to sponsor podcasts. 100%. Yep. That's why I was, I was so excited to be their first customer. It just worked out. They finally got approved just when I was moving. So Hannah, what are, what are we going to get into today? Like, what are we going to talk about? Let's, let's, let's dive into this. We're, we're going to get into a lot. I think, I don't know exactly where we're going. I feel like this is sort of just like a fun grab bag type episode because we have, I feel like we could probably have 10 different conversations here and each one would be 
very interesting in its own right and wildly different from all the others. There's so much overlap in the the things that we've talked about over the years with education and entrepreneurship and et cetera. So, so here's maybe an interesting, so, cause you mentioned yeah. that you have gotten pushback from people. I want to know what kind of things specifically that you've talked about on this show you're getting pushback around and what kind of pushback does that, what does that look like? Yeah. So I actually, I had one very specific, uh, very long message that I got from a listener um, a couple weeks ago, maybe slightly longer than that by the time this episode comes out. But I had somebody on the show recently, her name was Audrey Wish, uh, and she is building a tutoring company where she pairs college students as tutors with basically K through 12 students. So she works with the whole, you know, uh, primary and secondary age spectrum. Um, and she pairs these tutors with kids based on like the things that the kids are interested in. So maybe they like don't like math very much. They need a math tutor, but maybe they're like really interested in science and they can be paired with a science major and actually learn about like aerospace engineering or whatever they're interested in. Um, and that sparked some interesting conversations from people about how programs like that tend to be more available to people who have the resources to pay for a tutoring program and is less helpful to people who don't have a lot of resources to begin with, which echoes a sentiment that I get on Twitter a lot whenever I talk about alternative programs. I, there's always somebody in the comments talking about how this is just for the privileged, this is just for the rich, and this goes across the spectrum. I think there are a few different places that we can dig into this because I get a lot of pushback around homeschooling advocacy where people think, homeschooling is just for the rich and you're, you know, a multi-time startup founder unschooling your kids. Startup founders are not always rolling in it when they're starting a new company. Um, so I'm sure you have a lot to say about that and we can get there in a minute. But I think more interestingly, I think that a lot of people see entrepreneurship and education as being something that is reserved for like the the recipients of the innovations made here is it's reserved for people who have the means to pay for it which i know is very counter to how you think about innovation and education as driving the price of everything down um but i think this is really counterintuitive to people i think a lot of people hear this stuff and they're like yeah that's really cool for the rich people but what about everybody else yeah i'm gonna call bullshit 100 on those people if you're listening i'm talking to you right now people who are like that's only for the rich you're not telling the truth. I'm serious. You're not telling, you know, you're not talking about, it's always about theoretical person, right? Like, okay, well, maybe I could find a way to do this, but I can imagine people who would have no possible way to approach education in this more entrepreneurial way because they're not rich. Oh my gosh. I can, that is an excuse. I don't know why I could sit here and try to theorize and psychoanalyze where that's coming from or why that need to come up with objections and reasons why theoretical people that you can imagine could never improve their lives in any way by this method. I don't know why people love to do that, but they love to do that. I have this vlog post I wrote years ago about theoretical man. And anytime you do any kind of content around, hey, here's something you can do to improve your life. It could be the most generic thing ever. Like, if you work harder at something, you'll tend to get better results or something like that. You will find somebody, they're never talking about themselves. You'll never find someone who's like, I have worked harder consistently at something and it made me worse at that thing. So this is wrong. They'll be like, 
I can imagine a person for whom this might not be true because they don't have access to things that it's like people that just hate themselves and feel guilt all the time. I don't know what it is, but, but that's, what's driving it. It's, it's almost never about an actual person in an actual circumstance. So let's get down to what does it mean in terms of education? Let, let's take health as an example, right? Like, can you afford to have, you know, Derek Jeter's personal trainer? No, neither can I. Does that mean you can't be healthy? that you can't be in reasonably good shape. Of course not. Literally every person on earth who still has the use of, of their arms, if they're not you know, paralyzed or something, can do 100 push-ups. Like do as many push-ups as you can every day, get to 100, do 100 push-ups every day. Run a mile every day. You don't even need to wear shoes to run a mile. I run barefoot. Like literally, there, you absolutely can be in reasonably good shape without having any resources at all. Education is very similar. Like the number one thing you can do is stop making yourself dumber by, by learning the things that are being crammed down your gullet in like most school settings. Even if you can't leave school for some reason, even if you're trapped in the school, come up with your own way of learning. Like tune into your own, you don't even have to have money to buy books. You can get online, everybody can get online. You can get online and make a curriculum for yourself. One hour a day, I'm going to find something not assigned in class and I'm gonna read about it. There's nothing that's stopping that from happening, right? So when it comes to like the mindset behind what you're talking about, taking charge of your own life and education, if you just accept, I can do that in some small way, and you start thinking that way, suddenly you'll start to find more and more. You can do it a lot more than you think. It's just like with starting a business. Oh, I can't do any of that. I need money. I need money to start a business. Everybody thinks that. And then you're like, no, I don't. I can do something. Well, what can I do? And you start to do those few things. And then you realize you can do a, more than a few things. And then you realize you can do even more. And at some point you're like, it's limitless. I can do almost anything without resources. And you don't think that unless you first accept that you can, that there's something there. But if you stop there and say, that's just for people with more resources than I have, then you'll never do it. You got to kill that mindset. And then it starts to open up. And I'm talking about homeschooling. I don't know how many people, how many homeschoolers have you met? Like homeschoolers are poor. I'm serious. Typically, my wife and I have moved 10 times in the last 20 years. We've lived in five states, six cities, and we have plugged into the homeschool community in every one of those. And I will tell you, the vast majority of the families at these meetups, doesn't matter if it's an unschool group, if it's a classical conversations with a ton of formal structure, if it's a co-op, if it doesn't matter, we've been a part of all of them. I would say 60 to 80% of the people at pretty much every one of those are not well off by any means. Like many times they're in between jobs for long periods of time. Many times they're met homeschool families who are living in an RV, not because they're trying to have an experience, but because they can't afford a house while they're waiting to get a job and they're still managing to homeschool. Like it is possible, right? Like it is totally possible. It doesn't take what you think it takes. If you just accept that first, and then you can start to say, well, like, what's the minimum that I can do? Again, use the health analogy. Okay, I can't have Derek Jeter's personal trainer. Maybe I can't have a gym membership. Maybe I can't afford to buy a weight bench. But what can I do? I can do something to improve my health. What can that be? Maybe I watch some yoga videos and I do 10 minutes of yoga every morning. What is it? What Start with what can you do, not with what you can't do. And if you start there, the, the lid just gets blown off. So I never accept that objection. It's like, who? Tell me. Tell me who you're talking about. Who can't access this? What can't they access? What are they trying to accomplish? Is there anything they can do to move towards that goal? Tell me. There's always something. 
Let's start with what they can do, not what they can't do. I didn't mean to go on a soapbox, but you got me fired up. I hate it when people say that. I don't believe I do too. It really, it really bothers me because it just immediately shuts down all conversation. Like, and it makes you feel like you're a bad person for even suggesting that people could improve their education. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. Yeah. It turns you into the villain instead of the person who's coming in trying to help, which yeah. is the intention. But and, and here's I the thing that the, the individual, the individual who wants an education, they love being empowered. I mean, when we we're, you know, starting off Praxis, the number one thing that we did was find young people who were thinking in the back of their head, I kind of suspect that I could get a better education and a better job outside of college, but they felt crazy for thinking that way. And they were told they were crazy. And they were like, oh, well, only if you're like a genius like Mark Zuckerberg and you're going to start the next Facebook, then you can skip college. But, and they were like, and all, literally all we would do was come and be like, hey, guess what? Psst, you're not crazy. Everyone else is crazy. You're actually right. You can think of something better. And ask them, what can you imagine that would be better than college? What can you, what are your goals? Can you think of a faster, cheaper way to get there? Cheaper? Did you hear that? It's for people who don't have a lot of resources to waste, right? What's the most efficient path? Can you think of one? And just letting them know that they're not crazy, they have a hunch that they can do better, that they can do more for their own education. And instead of telling them, no, you can't because you're not privileged, tell them, yes, you can. Let's figure out what you can do. Let's open up those possibilities. That's where I want to be. I mean, that's how you, that's how I met you is because of that message that you were putting out on the internet. When I decided not to go to college, I was in my senior year of high school as a homeschooler and my parents were supportive, but everybody else in the world around me thought I was insane. And so I sent you an email because I was reading your blog posts about this and you were the only person at the time who was saying that this is possible, that you can, you, you were employing college dropouts, like Zach Slayback had dropped out of University of Pennsylvania, like you were, you were employing people who had dropped out of prestigious paths to take, do something unexpected and uncharted, which is incredibly validating when you're deciding not to do this yourself. It's not like these people couldn't get into college, it's that they decided they could do something better. And so you were like the one voice of reason about this. And I feel like the conversation around this has changed so much since I discovered what you were doing in like 2014, 2015, because back then you were kind of the only person that came up when you started Googling skipping college. And now, you know, every big media outlet has articles about this, questioning the validity of college, the sort of Overton window on a broad societal level maybe hasn't shifted as much as one would hope. It's still pretty normal to go down the, the traditional path. You, you have to, there's a lot of resistance to doing something else, but at least people are talking about it. But I feel like a lot of the conversation, not just about skipping college, but about education in general has changed so much. I'm curious about your perspective on that as somebody who in a lot of ways was driving a lot of the momentum around the shift in conversation around college, but also you know, you've been homeschooling or unschooling your own kids through this entire, how long have you been unschooling now? I forget how old your oldest oh, I mean, is. I mean, since, I mean, my oldest is 18. So like yeah. since the beginning, really, we've tried various approaches and stuff and, and we can, we can get into some of that, but yeah. And I was homeschooled myself growing up, uh, in practice, it was somewhat unschooly. It was pretty loose <laughs> in many ways. Um, but yeah, I mean, it has, it has shifted a ton. I, Forgive me. I'm going to put a bow, I promise, on that rant previously about privilege and whatever. Only we'll, because we'll when, you were talking, <laughs> well, when you were talking, it just reminded me like, 
If you go out there and say, hey, trying to do your own thing, homeschool, get a tutor, opt out of college, do an apprenticeship or whatever, that's only for the privileged. Ask yourself, who are you helping by, by promoting that message? Are you helping anyone? Is there someone who is about to attempt to take control of their own education and by trying, they were going to ruin their life and you save them by telling them, don't worry, it's not possible. You're too poor. I think people think that's what happens though. I, I don't think, think, that's think that's ever happened. And I think if you're honest with yourself, either. that's not going to happen, right? It's like telling someone who's trying to get in shape, hey, you can't afford a gym membership. This is not for you. Health and fitness aren't for you, right? Like who are you helping? You're not helping anyone, but you are doing damage. You are literally doing damage because what Hannah just described she came to that crux, that point where she's like, I don't think this is for me. I have a suspicion that I can do more. Maybe I'm worth more than college. Maybe there's a different path for me. And when she came to that moment, she's like, if I'm the first person on earth that's ever thought of this and no one else has, maybe I am crazy. So let me go look for validation. And if what she comes across is people being like, that's not for you. That's for rich kids. That's for kids who have trust funds. That's, for, that's not for you then she might give up on it. It does actual harm. It really does. Because people are at the most vulnerable point where they want to take a bet on themselves and say, I think I can do something that people around me aren't willing to do. And if the only voices they hear are people saying, no, you can't, only other people can do those. Only rich people can do those. You're actually doing damage to them. So put a bow on that. Forgive me. The changes. So I'm going to, I'm going to just like quickly go way, way back. So I was born in 1983. I'm really old. I'm about Whoa, to be Whoa, we're doing a history lesson I'm about here. to be 40. Um, my mom, my parents homeschooled us in Michigan. And when they first started homeschooling us, it was like sort of illegal. Like you really, it was unclear. And then it was like, you could do it if you were a certified teacher. My mom happens to have been a teacher before she homeschooled us. So like we were okay, but we had tons of friends who homeschooled and it like, they weren't certified teachers and they just did it. They broke the law. And some of them got CPS came after their kids. Like it was genuinely risky in the like late eighties ish. There was a big move, homeschool, legal defense, and some others fighting against that. And Michigan was one of the better, even to this day, they're one of the better States in this regard in terms of homeschool regulations, basically Anybody can homeschool for any reason at any time, and you don't have to report to the state or send them your grades or register or any of that stuff. At least that's how it was uh, when I left 15 years ago from Michigan. Other states are not quite so generous, but for most of them, even if you're supposed to register with a co-op or send in test results, in almost all of them, if you don't do it, really nothing's going to happen. Like, don't take that as legal advice, but I just, I know enough people who are just, they don't do any of that stuff and nothing really happens, right? So like, so just that's, that's how far we've come, right? Like 40 years ago, it was literally illegal. You could get your kids taken away from you in, in almost every state. And then it became legal and then it became more and more accepted. And growing up, you know, we'd be at the grocery store during the school day and people would be like, why aren't you kids in school? I would be with my mom or whatever. I'm like, oh, we're homeschooled. And they would look <laughs> at you like, what, what is that? They'd never heard of it before. And they'd be like, well, aren't you worried about socialization? I'm like, well, I'm talking to you, aren't I? Like, I, you know, like, I mean, I always thought that was weird as a kid. Because, you know, if I'm like eight and some adults like asking me and I'm having a conversation with them and they're like, why aren't you worried about socialization? And I always thought that was so funny, even way back then, because all the kids I knew that went to school, they literally couldn't talk to adults. They had no idea. They didn't know how to talk to an adult nine times out of 10. They could only talk to kids their exact same age. They couldn't even talk to kids two years older or younger than themselves. Like they didn't know how to socialize. And these adults would grill me about whether I could socialize. And I'd be like sitting there like, taking it, you know? And I just wanted to, I just wanted to be like, well, what, you know, what about your kids? Like, could they handle, 
<laughs> answering these questions anyway. Um, but so it was, uh, it was rare, right? It was rare and it was weird. Fast forward to, let's say even, even five years ago. And my wife and I homeschool, we meet people and they're like, Oh, where do your kids go to school? We say we homeschool. And the majority, not, not everybody, but the majority of responses were something to the effect of that's cool. I wish I could do that. So it went from in the span of about 20 years, it went from what is that? That sounds dangerous and weird to not only have I heard of that, but I actually think it would be a better experience for my kids if I could find a way to pull it off. Now, maybe they don't mean that. Maybe they, they're really just trying to be nice. But the fact that the window shifted to where like, not only is it like I've heard of that, but I kind of commend you for that. Good job. Like people used to like rip on my mom and be like, that's horrible. You shouldn't send your, you shouldn't homeschool your kids. They come up with all kinds of reasons, especially public school teachers, right? Like if your kid's not in school on count day, they get less money from the state and whatever. And it's like, well, we're not there. So why would you need more money to educate me if I'm not in there to be educated by you, whatever. Um, almost no hostility, you know, five years ago and a lot of like, man, that sounds cool. And even you would get people sometimes get preemptively defensive, which I always thought was really interesting. They'd be like, well, I don't think that's best for everybody. And you'd be like, well, I never said it. Well, I literally just answered your question. And you're like, I think because a lot of parents deep down, and I'm not saying this to make anyone feel bad, but I think deep down they feel bad that they're sending their kids to these public schools a lot of the time. If they can't afford private school, they're like, I kind of feel like I should be homeschooling, but I feel like I can't for whatever reason. And I'm not going to answer whether or not you can or can't. I, like to me, I think like if you really want to enough, I think it's possible for anybody. But, but that that preemptive defensiveness, like, well, I think uh, it's kind of like whoa. There's a little like insecurity there. So there's this weird shift where it's almost seen as like the better option. Fast forward to today, everything that's happened since COVID, where I think when a lot of parents saw their kids doing these remote classrooms and saw and I think for a lot of them, it was like, whoa, this system does nothing. They're not learning anything. My kid wasn't in school for two months. Nothing bad happened. In fact, they were around the house and I think they learned more. And like, now it's even more. Now there's almost this like huge surge of interest and people being like, when, when we tell people they homeschool, we homeschool, the number one question is things like, how do you make that work? They're curious about how they could make it work. Do you have any recommendations for me? Do you have books I should read? Can you do it for one kid and not another? Can you put your kid back in if you don't like it? They're asking practical questions because they're entertaining the idea very seriously. So like that shift has been massive on that side. And then in the college arena, I think it has been, it's been slower. I think that's going to take, frankly, like a change in generations because uh, it's really the parents, the, the young people have come a long way. Young people 10 years ago when I started Praxis, very few were willing to entertain the idea of not going to college. Today, almost all of them are like, yeah, I don't, college is a waste. I don't really want to go. I wish I didn't have to go, but I just don't have the strength to fight against my parents. That's the predominant answer from students. So students have shifted a long way. Parents, very little, very little. It's very hard because they're so invested in like, that's what they have geared everything around. And you can't suddenly make them be like, wait, this 409 plan I saved for my whole dream of getting my kids to college, all that, like that, I had to throw all that out the window. 
that's a much harder shift. It is definitely moved. And these conversations are conversations you can at least have. And they'll get on the news from time to time, different alternatives and programs. But it's kind of put off in neat little boxes. Like you cannot go to college if you are A, a genius like Mark Zuckerberg and can start a billion dollar company. B, you're going to go into blue collar work and you're going to become like a lineman or an electrician or something like that. Um, you know, or maybe C, there's some kind of like, you know, you're going to be like whatever, an artist or some, or maybe you're just like, you know, you're like, basically you're a failure essentially like, well, maybe you're just not smart enough. Right. There isn't this category, which to me is the biggest category. You're too smart and too ambitious and too clear thinking to fricking waste your time and your money in these dying clown factories. I mean, seriously, what a joke, right? Like that's the biggest thing. If you're just like a normal, hardworking, ambitious, smart person, why the heck would college is beneath you? That's the conversation that like students are ready for parents aren't. It's a little too personal for them, but it's coming. It's coming. So that was a really long-winded answer, walk through history. No, that was great. There are multiple pieces of this that I want to pick at. But first, I had the exact same experience that you did at the grocery store. I haven't thought about this in years, but you you told this story. And I remember, I remember this happening multiple times, but I remember a very specific instance. I was at the grocery store with my mom and my grandma and the lady, the cashier asked why I wasn't in school. And I remember, you know, my mom kind of was, you know, whatever she'd heard the question before. But I remember my grandma who had worked in public schools for much of her life. She was she actually seemed embarrassed by the question. Like it made her really uncomfortable. She was very defensively like, oh, she's homeschooled. But it was very obvious that she was not saying that because she was proud of it. It like made her uncomfortable. And I had about the exact same internal monologue that you just described. I'm like, <laughs> I'm here. Like, I'm talking to you. What are you talking about? Um, but it's weird how uncomfortable it makes people. And I do, I've noticed that shift too. And I tell people that I was homeschooled when I was a kid. I remember people being very perturbed by that. They didn't quite know what to do with it. And now people are really responsive to it. Um, but I think the, the college element is very interesting t- for the homeschool conversation, actually, because I think for a long time, homeschoolers used college kind of as a benchmark for academic achievement. It was like, well, our kids didn't go to normal school, but they got into a good college. So clearly they got everything that they needed for out of their education. They're they're successful academically and they're going to be successful in the real world because college is a proxy for your ability to be successful in the workforce. And I think for a long time, I I think maybe it did serve its purpose in the homeschool community to to kind of like prove that like we have all the statistics of, you know, homeschoolers acceptance rate into colleges and all the anecdotes from college professors saying that they like homeschoolers better because they actually know how to study on their own and, and adapt to college in a way that public school kids maybe don't. But I find it very odd too. That like this was kind of the the journey that I went on when I was in high school and I was trying to figure out what to do. I mean, you know my story. I was a very academic kid. I seemed very much college bound, but I really didn't see the point. And it seemed very expensive and very much like a waste of time. But it was a tough sort of paradigm shift, even coming out of this very non-traditional K through 12 experience. Like I think a lot of homeschoolers don't think that you can just buck the entire system altogether. Like there's this sort of buy-in to, okay, we're going to bypass the normal system for now. We're going to bypass it like K through 12, but then we're going to re-enter the conveyor belt once this detour that we've decided to take is over. And I think that sort of paradigm of 
stepping outside of the system uh, sort of conditionally for a certain period of time or for like a, a certain phase of the system, but not, or the conveyor belt, but like, you know, not the entire thing. I think that's pretty common for people bucking the system at every stage. Like I think people do that a lot. You see it with homeschoolers too. Like they'll, they'll we'll homeschool our kids through middle school, but then they'll still go to high school. Or like we'll homeschool through high school, but then we'll, they'll still go to college. Or like, yeah, my kid was traditionally educated. They decided to skip college, but then they're going to step back on the normal career conveyor belt. And so much of what your life has consisted of, but also the work that you've done, has been a much more holistic system exiting where, you know, you haven't really taken the traditional path anywhere all that much. And you've built programs and companies that help people not take the traditional path even more um, in everything from, you know, skipping college all the way through, like changing how people think about career trajectories. I mean, you're a multi-time founder. You're definitely not on the, the normal career path building your own things. But I find this, it's so interesting that people have such a hard time with this paradigm shift of holistic exit as a, like, I don't know quite what the right terminology is. I feel like yeah, there's a coined well, term for this, but you know what I'm getting at. Totally. Well, I almost... I almost might challenge the framing and reframe it a little bit too. So yeah, please. If you view it as like, here's sort of the system, the conveyor belt, which is a very apt term and you have, you know, little segments of it, but it's all basically one in most people's mind. You have your, you know, elementary, middle, high school, college, and then maybe there's even something after college conveyor belt. And there's little versions of that. Well, maybe you do community college or maybe you do whatever, but it's, that's the whole thing. And I think homeschoolers accept that framework. And basically it's like what, what happens at the end of the conveyor belt? What's weird is nobody even talks about actual career. Like the conveyor belt's purpose theoretically is to prepare you to succeed in life, but nobody uses your success in life as the way to measure the success of the conveyor belt, even though they say that's its goal. So they're literally like my kid graduated with honors from this university. That in itself is the status symbol. They could be living at home in my basement, utterly depressed with no friends, no job, for three years and like eating chicken wings on the couch all day. But you will still hold up as the, they succeeded on the conveyor belt because they graduated with honors from this university. And no one will judge the conveyor belt for the outcome, which is the weirdest thing ever. So weird. So homeschoolers will look at that and say, this conveyor belt seems kind of crappy in these early segments. Let me replace it with my own version my own thing, whatever that is, get off the conveyor belt, or maybe there's a different version of a conveyor belt. There's all sorts of variation. And then to prove that me opting out worked, I will make sure they graduate with honors from X university. And then hold that up. As, again, not what do they do in life? Are they happy and successful and kind and have friends and a rich life? Yeah, no, no, no. We need something that's an easily digestible status symbol that everyone else uses to compare against everybody else. And I can be like, homeschoolers do better in college. They go to better schools and get better grades and graduate with more, you know, honors and whatever the heck. And it's like, okay, but you saw that that was kind of a silly way to go about education earlier in the fate. Why, why is that still the symbol? So the way that I like to reframe it, rather than you have to choose between conveyor belt and exiting the entire system, I like to see it as like, start with you, the individual learner, or the parents of your learner. Start with them at the center, the individual human being. What kind of things are going to make for a valuable 
education, what is the purpose of education to improve them and to make them have a better life, be a better human with better morals and integrity, have a more fulfilling and productive life that is useful to themselves and others, right? Whatever the standards are that you utilize to judge that, most people's are frankly fairly similar, but there's some variation. That's the goal of this thing we call education, growing up, of raising a child, of having them learn how to go out and live independently in the world and have a good life. Start with them at the center and then see everything else around them as potential tools in that toolkit. And you don't have to throw out the tools of college or high school or public school or private school. Those are all part of the toolkit. At any given phase, look at the various things in front of you and say, given this phase and this stage and what I think is the most valuable and important for this young person, or if you are the young person or person in general, what's the most valuable and important for me in this stage? What would it be better to enroll in the local public school, enroll in a private school, be unschooled, go apprentice at a company, be homeschooled on a rigorous curriculum, be homeschooled on a loose curriculum, do some combination, like look at all the things out there and choose one at a time. And if you look at it more a la carte, and like you go to a high school for a year, don't look at that as I chose the conveyor belt. I need to be the not school person. Like don't wrap your whole identity for all time in being in the system or being out of the system. See all of it more practically than that. These are all tools floating in orbit. I mean, for myself, I was homeschooled. I went to community college my last couple of years of high school, not because I thought it was amazing. I actually enjoyed a, like maybe a quarter of the classes and uh, maybe would have taken them just for the heck of it. I don't know. Um, but I thought I needed that degree, right? So then I transferred to a four-year institution, paid my way through, wish I wouldn't have, total waste of time and money. Didn't know that at the time, right? Later on, I got a master's degree and I would do that again, not because it did anything for my career in any way. And it was because someone offered to pay for it for me. And it was a really cool way. It was a very unique program in Austrian economics to force me to read all the books that I wanted to read because someone else was paying for it. And I would feel guilty if I didn't go through and read them all. And I just read like tons and tons and tons of books on Austrian economics. The fact that that was a master's degree at a university that like rubs against my rebel, the rebel part of me that's like opt out of the system. But it's like, here I am presented with this thing. Do you want to go to classes one night a week for a year and a half for three hours a night where you're being taught Austrian economics and you're being assigned all these books and somebody else is going to pay for it? I was like, yeah, that sounds cool. That was an option in the toolkit, right? So like my own kids, my son, when he got to about 14, 15, he wanted to go to school. He wanted to go to the public school. He went to public school for like a year and then was like, okay, I don't like that anymore. Now I didn't say, no, we are principled unschoolers. We will not go to school. Once you're to the age where I feel, I felt for him at that age, he wanted that. He wanted to try it. And I felt like that was important for him to try it and see it. And if he had wanted to finish there, I don't care. If, if any of my kids want to go to college, I've told them I'm not going to pay for you to go to college because I think it's a waste. If you want to go to college, go to college. I'm not going to stop you. It's not like this is an anti-college family. I want all of these things for everybody, right? Like look at the landscape, say, what do I want? There are certain things where you're like, hey, maybe I hate the fact that the government makes it legally required to get a degree in order to be an accountant, but I really want to be an accountant. So I got to go to college. I'm not going to be like, no. You can't, if, if to you that's worth it, it's worth that cost and you want to do it, of course, by all means, right? But I think just changing the paradigm from one where it's like, I either accept the system and do everything it tells me to, or I opt out of the system and I can only do things that are outside of the system. 
Forget about that. That's not focused on what you want enough. It's too focused on other people and their status and their goals. It's most people are stuck in the, I need the status symbol uh, that everybody else accepts, even though it's totally dumb and worthless and literally has no bearing on your ability, skill, intelligence, or worth as a human being, that college degree, dumbest signal I can imagine, but people want it and they get obsessed over it. But there are also people few and far between, but I have run into them who make the rejection of that status symbol their own status symbol. And they're not thinking so much about what's actually serving me at any phase in life, but they're like, as long as it's not college, it's like, I'll never, you know? And if I'm like, hey, this is a really cool, whatever. There's this really cool opportunity here. And it happens to be a, a class offered at a university. And you're like, boy, I really would enjoy that, but I can't do it because it's at a university and I don't want to sully my name. Like, to me, that's kind of like, okay, you kind of lost the plot a little bit, right? So that that's all kind of a way to reframe it and to say, always bring it back at any phase, at any stage. What do I want? What are my goals? What are all the options available to achieve those goals? Not for all time, just for this next stage. And which ones seem the most likely to help me move forward? And be really honest about that. And it's usually what creeps in is what will other people think of me? And when you're acting based on that and you raise kids up to act on that early in their life, their whole life is going to be that way. And that's a hellish way to live. They're going to live where other people want them to live. They're going to dress how other people want them to dress. They're going to believe what other people want them to believe. They're, they're not going to know who they are. They're, going to, they're not going to have a self, right? So like start early on. Why would I go to school for a semester, a day, a year, or would I not go to school? just because I have to, so other people think that I'm a certain thing. That's a terrible reason, right? So like that, I, that just, just shattered the whole frame altogether and just think based on what you need. So I want to go a little deeper into the philosophy side of this, because I think everything that you just said is a very rousing rallying cry, but it's not necessarily like I want to bring it down into the more nitty gritty actionable. Like, how do we start thinking about this? Because I think for some people and probably earlier listeners to this show who gravitate towards it because they're, you know, rebels and radicals also, it's going to feel pretty intuitive what you just said. But I think for the majority of people thinking this way is completely radical and because of that, it's not clear how you go from this sort of like big picture set of principles, like I want to live according to my values and not someone else's, how to bring that down into the practical, like what are my values and what am I making decisions around? Like if I'm not, if I'm not making decisions based on the model that other people have set for me and I'm not relying on the safety anymore of the crowd. Like if we all walk off the cliff together, at least we walked off together. You know, it wasn't my fault we went over the cliff. We just kind of were all walking there. If you can't defer the responsibility and you can't just default to the model, then you have to think very critically about what your values actually are. And I think that's an exercise that a lot of people have not had to do at least not at the practical and, and responsible level of saying like, you know, I'm going to decide what's important to me. I'm going to act on it. And then if it goes poorly, it's on me because yeah. I'm the one who assessed the value. So how do you think about what is like what those values are? Cause you kind of alluded to them earlier that you said like, you know, most people kind of have a similar set of values around what they think is important, not just in education, because education is just a step in the process of, you know, fulfilling your values over the course of a lifetime, but also 
and this is a separate thought, but I think it's worth mentioning, education's also not really a thing that gets constricted down into, you know, pre-18 behavior. No, it's it, not a thing that you do and then you're done with. It's a way of being. Yeah. Over exactly. the which I guess we could argue is a value, but I think that's important for most life success. Yeah, like but how do you start thinking about those values? Yeah, education, if you want to boil it down the most, is the process of improving yourself on some metric. So the idea of improvement first implies some direction you want to go, either a either an end state goal or a direction that is one that's not achievable, but it's directional. Like I want to be kind. It's not like I get to a point where I'm like, finally, I'm kind. I'm good to go. Like you can always be kinder, right? Like I want to be fit or healthy or uh, intelligent. Like it's, it's at least directional. So it implies some direction that you have decided is worth going, right? So like, I, I, I agree. Education is not like a phase in life. Um, although there are phases in life that I would define as what, what percentage of responsibility is on your own shoulders. Like a baby's born, they're not ready. They would die if you didn't take care of them. And then there's some continuum. At some point, people will die if you keep taking care of them, right? Like die inside. Uh, that continuum, and it's different for every person at different ages and stages. Like that's the process of like achieving independence. And education is a part of that, but education is a part of the whole rest of life too, right? It's just improving on the things that you need to improve on to keep moving. Um, I think it's an interesting uh, side point before I, I get into sort of the, how do you identify your goals and values and what you do want and how to get there? You mentioned, you know, like a lot of people would rather go off the cliff together uh, than not go off the cliff alone. And I want to just put as a side, now maybe this is purely theoretical. Maybe I'm playing semantics games, but I want to put out there, I am not even going to make the claim that you ought to want to not go off the cliff with everyone. Look, Maybe you're someone who's like, you know what? I'm being totally honest with myself. I would rather suffer in complete misery as long as everyone else around me is also miserable. If that's you, like, I'm not going to tell, like, it makes me sad. But if you're like, oh, no, I'm totally honest. That's what I want. Those are my goals. That's, that is potentially, at least theoretically, a valid approach. And if you at least have that approach, that's actually a much more honest way to approach things than telling yourself lies like, no, this is the best way. If the real reason is because you, frankly, you would just rather die with everybody doing the same thing as you than live, uh, whether metaphorically, spiritually, or physically, um, right? Uh, being different, like that's one valid path. Just throw that out there. Um, not my path, but so it's a really interesting question you asked, Hannah, because this idea that like, okay, if I want to look at at any phase of my life, what are the goals I'm trying to achieve, the values I have, what's the best way for me to get there? People like you and I who tend to be fairly analytical, um, it's easy to kind of fall into a bit of a professorial uh, trap of, all right, so here's what everyone needs to do. They need to start identifying their deepest values and principles. And they've got to be able to logically argue for them that they're sound. And then you get into debates about like, does God exist? And are religious values good or bad? Should you have values based entirely on some other framework? Can you prove them? Are they grounded in nature? Are they arbitrary? Those are all fun and interesting conversations. Believe me, I have spent more hours than I care to count on those kind of conversations. And I, and I think those are, those are, to a degree, to an extent, can be valuable, especially if you find them interesting. 
But I think that approach, it's the same way that I'm a big fan of Austrian economics. It's the same way that a lot of mainstream economists think about the economy in this top-down manner. Well, first you have to decide what is the optimal level of production. And then you have to come up with policies that are going to drive you to that optimal level of production and you blah, blah, blah. Whereas like the more realistic economists, the Austrian school, I would put in this bucket, recognizes we're not smart enough to know that stuff. And you can't learn sort of out of thin air. You have to, you, you learn experience and ideas are this constant feedback loop that need each other. And so instead of saying, what are my highest values? What are the things I care the most about? And then what is the proper educational setup to get me there? What if you just looked at what you're experiencing right now and took feedback from it? So that's why I like to start with really simple framing things in the negative instead of in the positive. What do I want more of? Do I want more freedom? And then what would that look like practically? Would that mean more time to play the guitar? Would that, what is that my real value? That's really freaking hard to do. If you want to go through the exercise, go through the exercise and it may be valuable to you. For some people, it could be really valuable. But for me, I've always found it easier to do the opposite, to say, okay, I'm just going about doing stuff in life. We're all doing stuff. Nobody's at a standstill. Where do I feel pain? Like, this is how kids learn most things, right? Ow, that hurt. I don't want to do that again, right? I know I want to do less of that thing because it hurt me or it was boring or it was whatever. What am I doing right now that, that kind of sucks? Where I'm like, this, every time I do this, I feel less happy. I feel drained. I want to do less of that, right? So like, I have a, a book back here somewhere called Don't Do Stuff You Hate. And that's this idea that like start there because it's an easier question to answer. You could probably make a huge long list. Everything you did today that you kind of hate, and you might be able to say how much you hate it. And if it's on like the maximum level, then prioritize that first. How can I engineer my life so I don't do that at all anymore? Or that I do a little bit less of that? Or is there a way I can get to a year from now, two years from now, where I'm not doing that at all or where I'm doing very little of that, right? Like, what things make me feel dead inside? And you almost use, it's almost like you're trusting that you subconsciously on some level, you have some kind of knowledge and awareness of your values that is deeper than your ability, your ability to articulate it at any given moment. And I have found that to be true for myself and pretty much everybody else. Like, I'm not going to sit here and argue philosophically that that is, I'm not going to try to validate it, but let's just talk practically. This is a really effective way to try to move towards those things. So what you end up getting is a discovery of those values kind of emerges out of this give and take process. And it's a much easier path to achieve them. We'll use your podcast as an example. You know this because you've heard me say this kind of stuff before. If you decide, I want to have a podcast, right? Let's use that as an analogy to, I want to have a quote, good life. Well, what is, what is having a podcast look like? What should be the topic? Who should be the guest? How long should it be? What format? What microphone should I use? What kind of art should I, what, you know that if you had to come up and you're like, well, I got to value all this down from first principles. First, what is the number one principle that my podcast is about? And then what is the best means of advocating that principle? And then that will inform the design and that will inform the production quality. And that, think about that exercise, like, whoa, that's daunting. And guess what? If you get any of those steps, even a little bit wrong, when you go to bring that podcast into the real world, it will break. Something will be a little bit wrong about your plan and the whole thing will break because it's fragile. But if instead you say, all right, let me just go book the first five people I can, hit record with whatever the first software is that I find that's free, whatever mic I happen to have on me, and let me just record five episodes. Then what happens? 
you're like, ooh, that conversation was awkward. Isaac just talked the whole time and I never got a word in edgewise, right? Don't want to do that again. Or my microphone sounded really bad and distracting. Or, okay, that felt like we needed a theme. We needed a better, or hey, these conversations, they all keep emerging around this same theme. That's the topic I'm going to lean into. Or listeners love it when I do this, right? And these things emerge and you're like, ew, icky, less of that. Ooh, this is great, more of that. And that kind of helps you hone in. And then 10, 20 episodes in, you'll be able to come to me and be like, here's the vision of my podcast. Here's the format that we use. Here's the way that we crush it the most. Now those things will evolve, but that will kind of emerge from the process. So very long-winded way of saying, I think you can relieve a lot of that burden from yourself by just starting with making a list of things that really make you feel kind of dead inside that you're currently doing or you're afraid you might end up doing and then say, I want to not do those. Or I want to do less of those. And then say, what are some things that I could do in the next six months to a year that have a very high likelihood of making me not have to do those as much? And like, do that over and over again, every six months, every year, and you will start to hone in. And at some point along the line, you will probably have a very clear articulation of values and ways that you think about getting there. How do you think about that in the context of unschooling your kids? Because there's a different, it's sort of a different thing to take responsibility for your own life trajectory. If like you're of an age where you can have primary agency over your trajectory, everything that you just said clearly applies, but it's a little different when you're thinking about your own children and thinking about trying to predict what's going to be valuable versus not valuable to them and how much trust and agency you give to them to kind of dictate what they want to spend time on versus what you think is going to be important for them to know based <laughs> on your own experience. How do you think about this with your kids? Yeah, it's, it's funny. It's a lot harder, but not for the reasons you might imagine. So you might think it's a lot harder because, well, you're not in your kid's head. So how could you really know what's best for them? How could you know what they don't, you would be amazed how, this is just the way that parents and kids are wired to each other is the way we're created. How well you actually do know those things about your kids, right? Like ask any parent, and especially when the kids are young, you're pretty dang good at knowing what's really like making them dead inside and what's making them come alive and what's really not good for them and what seems to be pretty good for them. The challenge is not the lack of access to knowledge, once they get older and the more uh, independent they get, then you, the less you'll have that ability. But when they're young, you actually have this incredibly innate thing wired into you that can help you often better than they can know what's in their interest. The challenge is actually listening to that and removing all of the psychological and emotional and social baggage because it's really easy to project onto them what you wish was in their best interest because it will make you look good in the eyes of other people or because it will fulfill things that you didn't have when you were a child. And like, if you really get down and get honest, you can kind of uncover when that's happening, but it's painful to do. So it's not lack of information or knowledge. It's the discipline to actually like refrain from using your kids to fulfill your own things or to make you look good in the eyes of others. Like that's where it gets hard. Like if I'm really honest, and I mean, parents, we face this all the time. Something as simple as you're in a grocery store and you got a three-year-old. And someone says, oh, you're so cute. Hello. And the kid just stares at them. Now, the part of you that wants people to think you're a good parent and like you 
you have this instinctive reaction to be like, you say hello when someone talks to you. And if the person leaves you like, you, you, and you kind of scold them. And if you step back and think, now it could be different for different kids. Maybe your kid is deliberately being a jerk and you happen to know that. And maybe it is worth pushing them a little bit. But if it's like most kids, they're just in a moment of like, I don't know who this person is. They came over here all overly exuberant and they said something to me and I just didn't say anything back. If you step back and think, what's really in the best interest of my kid? Probably not worth saying anything. Maybe it's worth saying like, hey, you can, you can say hi when people say that to you. But scolding them, and especially right in front of someone and being like, say hello, you will say hello right now. Like I've had parents do this where I'm like, hey buddy, how's it going? And the kid doesn't say anything. And they're like, say hello, say hello right now to Mr. Morehouse. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, like easy. Don't shame the kid in front of me. It's not, it's so easy to do that though, because your instinctive reaction is what will this person think of me as a parent instead of what's actually good for my kid, right? Like that's where it gets really, really hard. So, um, uh, yeah, I do think that changes. And I think you have to kind of like start with the assumption that it's all on you. The kid, the kid really need, and you need to learn and get feedback from the kid and learn their personality and listen from them, but it's really on you. And then the older they get more and more of it is you're trying to get them to take that on themselves, to know what's good for themselves. I mean, even smallest stuff, like it's such a great joy when your kids start limiting their own intake of sugar or television because they have decided and figured out that it makes them grumpy and less happy, right? You're like trying to get to that spot in all of these areas. Um, so I don't know, hope that answers your question. I don't, I don't remember if I got off course. No, that's, that's good. I wanted you to go wherever that sparked your attention. So that's good. What about, tell me a little bit about your homeschooling experience and what, and how both what it looked like, but also how it shaped, because you're a second generation homeschooler, how it shaped how you think about homeschooling or unschooling your own kids. Yeah, it's really funny because if you ask, so I'm the youngest of three. If you ask me, my brother, my sister, or my mom, how about our homeschooling experience, we would all give you quite different answers. And I, th I find that really funny. So like, to me, I'm like, it was perfect. I'm so, it was amazing. I loved it. My older sister is like, wishes my mom would have done more. She wishes she like knew more things about other things or had more classes or there was more structure. We'll put it that way. She wishes there was more structure and organization. My brother, I don't think, I think he maybe wishes that he could have played more sports. Like we had homeschool basketball at the time and we had little league baseball, but there wasn't as many opportunities right back then as there are now for homeschoolers. Um, and, and, you know, maybe there's some other things. My mom is like, oh, I did such a terrible job because her goal, she's very idealistic. And she's like, she would hear about some new curriculum or go to some homeschool conference and be like, we're going to do this. We're going to get up at five every morning and we're going to like study the Bible. And then we're going to do this and we're going to do this. And we're gonna do this. And she'd make these huge plans and we'd stick to it for like a week. And she's very social. Back then people had these things called telephones that were physically connected to the wall and people would just call you randomly and there was no caller ID. The phone would ring. You would know that it was a friend because you got very few cold calls and you just answer it every time and be like, hello, no matter how interruptive it was because you assumed it was important. Very strange world for your younger listeners. We would get phone calls. My mom would answer the phone. She's very social. She'd be talking on the phone to her friends for like an hour at a time. My brother and I would sneak upstairs to play Legos and we'd like 
dig through the Lego bin. Like we'd pick the pieces up one at a time because when you dig through the bin, it's really loud. And she would hear it and be like reminded that we weren't doing school. We snuck upstairs and she'd be like, boys. I still hear her voice, boys. We were never individuals. We were boys, the two of us. So we were all, you know, lumped together. But like, then we come back down, do our school. Another phone call would come in. We'd sneak back upstairs. I mean, literally it was like, let's get away with as little as we can. She always felt guilty about this. Like she should have had more structure. She should have had at the time, I didn't care. Looking back, I'm so glad. I'm like, that was great. It was amazing. It was borderline unschooling. Now, my dad was in a car accident when I was like three. He was in the house with us, but he's in a wheelchair and needs constant care. So we had to help with him. We had home health aides helping with him. My mom was doing a lot of stuff with him. So by, by default, we had to be very independent in terms of like making our food, breakfast and lunch and dinner, cleaning the house. We had a lot of household chores. We always had jobs, you know, delivering papers and earning money from a very young age. And we had lots and lots going on in our social lives. My mom was very social. So we were always doing other stuff with other homeschoolers, with people from church, people from our sports teams. So we had like a lot going on, but very little structured academic work. My mom felt like she was failing for that. In retrospect, I'm like, that was perfect. That was perfect. I learned all the things that matter, work ethic, how to creatively find ways to do jobs that I was assigned faster or get other people to do them for me, uh, how to persuade my mom into not making me do jobs or redo jobs were very persuasive and could, could very easily argue my mom ended up, no, we don't want to rake the leaves. More leaves are going to fall in the next two weeks. Let's wait until we get there. And here's my three point reasons why we don't, you know, like I look back, those were actually valuable skills, right? Like, um, so that like, you know, going through that and, I think the, the main things that I took away were uh, work ethic, independence, and probably um, probably just the variety of situations we had to navigate. So we had home health aides that were in the house, in and out of the house all the time. We had, you know, all these different, um, you know, we would ride our bikes to our own, you know, piano lessons or baseball and all this stuff. So we were like interacting with people from lots of different age ranges, groups, public school kids, private school kids, homeschool kids, like Christian kids, non-Christian kids, adults that worked for my mom, uh, adults that we worked for, all these different kinds of people that we were interacting with, which is very rare, like compared to a typical public school environment. It's like adults are my authority. They're my teachers or my parents. And then kids that are my exact age. And that's pretty much it. And they all go to the same school and are usually very similar in, in their... So, I think I gained a lot there of just sort of flexibility, adaptability. And like, I wouldn't have known it at the time, but later in life, I realized kind of entrepreneurial thinking. Um, and being the youngest, I was just like very, you know, like I wanted to get what I wanted to get. And uh, like that kind of, I don't want to do things that aren't fun. Uh, that kind of behavior actually lends itself well to entrepreneurship because you're always looking for faster ways to get things done and to do less of this. You just like, I won't accept drudgery as much. So um, yeah, I would say that and it's funny with my siblings, even though my brother and sister have like maybe more critical things to say of the homeschool experience, they both homeschooled their kids. Um, and both chose to do that. Both recognized, you know, maybe they did it in slightly different ways. Uh, my sister actually, ironically is probably more unschool leaning than we grew up. Um, but very deliberately so. Uh, my brother's kind of done more of a blend, like maybe more of a rigorous curriculum. They've had some private school and tutors here and there and like mixed in and some different, um, some different things there. But, um, yeah, I think for all of us, just being able to zoom out and see and compare our own experience to our peers and what's available. And we look at our own kids, we're like, no, it's, 
it's definitely almost at almost every stage for almost every kid, it's a better option. Can you talk a little bit more about the work ethic piece specifically? Because the way you framed it might feel counterintuitive to some people. It's like, well, you just kept shirking doing school and your mom was on the <laughs> phone. How did you work? How did you learn work ethic? Where did that come from? Yeah. So one thing we always had was a lot of chores and those were non-negotiable. So we had a lot of household chores simply because they needed to be done and we didn't have a dad around to do them. And we had way more chores than the typical household because we had a lot of stuff to do to help with my dad. He needed, you had to make meals for him. You had to sit with him while he's eating so he doesn't eat too fast and choke. Like you have to transfer him to, you know, in and out of chairs or the bed or the shower or the bathroom or anything like that. So like by necessity from a very young age, like my brother and I were, would take care of mowing the lawn and all that kind of stuff. Like just cleaning the kitchen, doing the laundry. Um, all of us had chores and it was like for this household to run, it has to go this way. So it was, it was necessity type stuff. And when, even when you're a kid, you can see the difference. Like the dishes have to get clean for the house to function. The laundry has to get done. So I understand, even though I might complain, I kind of get it like this, this has to get done. I don't want a dirty bathroom either, right? Like I want dishes to eat off of versus, okay, do this homework for some subject you don't care about because it's in some curriculum. It was way easier for me to be like, that seems dumb. I don't see a reason to do that. Why are we doing this? My mom thinks it's a good idea. And I would argue with her and disagree and debate. And sometimes I would do it, but I would often try to not do it and be like, well, she obviously doesn't care that much because she's talking on the phone. So I'm going to go do something that's more interesting to me. Right. And like, I actually think that was a good thing. Like so, sort of, I, I kind of understood on a subconscious level and my mom modeled it, right. The things that really mattered, my mom crushed. She's a very hard worker. She's very like, like basic stuff around the house, maintaining things, taking care of my dad, making sure that we're all fed and clothed and then relationships with friends and family. And then like all these idealistic things about all this elaborate curricula. She didn't really nail that stuff, but that's the right order, right? She got it in the right order. And I think like values character, you know, she never, she never made us feel like we had to achieve a certain thing. She never made us feel like we had to go to college or get a certain job, or, but she absolutely made us feel like we had to be honest, hardworking, kind people of integrity. And she wanted us to have good lives and be good people. You know what I mean? And like, so I think from, from that standpoint, um, I took away the lessons that matter most because they're foundational lessons or universal lessons. You don't really learn work ethic if it's like, well, I always do what my teacher tells me. Does that mean you have good work ethic? It may or may not. It may just mean you want to be liked. It may just mean you're afraid of punishment. It may just mean any number of things. It could mean you have work ethic, but you don't know because it's not really the right, you know what I mean? Yeah. What about you? Your family was, is, was one of the classic types of situations that people love to cite when arguing about homeschooling being just for the privileged. Like what about the families who are single parent or have a disabled parent? Your dad needed full-time care and your mom was full-time homeschooling you guys. How did she make that work? She's crazy. I mean, she's amazing. She's truly amazing. Like my parents had decided before my dad's accident that they were going to homeschool us and so when he got in the accident, my sister was seven, my brother was five and I was three. So we were just like in the early stages, like my sister might've been doing a little bit of homeschool stuff. My mom had taught um, at a public school. She had been a special ed teacher and my dad was an accountant. And 
you know, they had decided they were going to homeschool. And then after the accident, I think for my mom, it was just never really a question. It was like, that's what we decided. So that's what we're going to do. And like financially, we did not have a lot of money. We were not poor. Like we didn't like my dad, it was very good and responsible. And so like very modest little house in a very modest little neighborhood in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Um, but like the house was paid off or was like not far from being paid off. Cause he was very, very cheap. He was an accountant. So he just like save his money and be like very, very frugal. So between, you know, like he had a, uh, like pension disability thing from his work, um, due to the accident. And then there was like insurance would cover most of his expenses due to the accident. So like we were okay. We could like basically live at our same standard of, of living pretty decently, financially, which was a huge blessing, right? Like that we could be, he had us, he was responsible enough with his various insurance policies and all that stuff to where like, we were okay. Certainly we're not rich by any means, but we were not poor. We were not like going hungry. But my mom, like the the common thing would be like, you got to go to work. Like you got to like, make sure you can provide and everything, or you got like, or in the very least, you're going to be taking care of your husband. You got to like put your kids in school or something. She just didn't even have a question. She's like, this is what my husband and I agreed to do. And this is what we're going to do. So, um, you know, it's one of those things where being idealistic to the point of delusion is actually an attribute that a lot of entrepreneurs have. I think I share it to a degree. My mom has that. It can be bad, but it can be really good. Like she just always like, oh, of course, it'd be no problem. And to the point where she would be taking on all kinds of other stuff. She'd be volunteering to help people. She'd be tutoring other people's kids. She'd be like, oh yeah, I'll record the homeschool play. And then like back then with a camcorder, you had, it took like the full amount of time of the video to re- to re- make a copy. She'd be like, and I'll make a copy for every single parent. She'd be like sitting in the basement for like 30 hours, just making copies that she was going to give to all the parents who request. She would just volunteer for this kind of stuff, which really like she had no business doing. She didn't have enough, but she's just that type of person. So she just found a way. She just found a way. And like, I mean, just if you commit to it and you really think you can do it, it's not, she didn't sit there lecturing us and teaching us stuff. By the time I was like 10, I, the level of math that I was doing was too, too much for my mom to teach. So like, I just did my own math books or just shot squirrels out the window with my BB gun when I was supposed to do my my own math work. Right. Like, I don't know. I remember when I was 14, I wanted to go to this private school because I wanted to move to their basketball team. And a bunch of my homeschool friends had switched there. And I was like, I had to take a placement test. I'm like, I have no idea. I could be a complete idiot. Like I have no clue. I never knew what grade I was in. I never knew like, what am I supposed to know for my age, for my grade? no idea. I took the placement test. I did just fine. Everything was fine. It was like, Oh, okay. Like I could place as a freshman, sophomore. It doesn't matter. Like I was like, Oh, that's good to know. Cause I never really knew, you know, like maybe I'm way behind maybe, but I think most of those things, people dramatically overestimate what it takes. I mean, take reading, for example, you know, kids spend how many hours and how many years trying to get to a certain reading level. And if you just wait till the kid is interested, they can do it in like, I can't remember the, the the numbers. There's like different studies on this stuff, but it's like, you know, concentrated focused hours where they're interested and motivated. They can learn to read in like 20 hours where they'll spend 200 unfocused, unconscious hours where they don't care yet. And by age, whatever, 14, 15, the reading comprehension is the same. Kids who learn to read when they were four versus 14 by age 15, their reading comprehension is the same. Literally like just this idea that you got to like spread it all out, break it up into subjects, drip it across this long period of time. When the kid gets motivated for my kids, it was like, they wanted to play 
Minecraft and be able to send text messages to their friends and be able to read them. So they quickly learned to read because their friends were messaging them and they couldn't read what it said. So then they learned like that. But when we're just trying to teach them arbitrarily and they have no reason to learn, right? So like, I think a lot of those things, when you have something you want, you can learn anything really quickly. When it's devoid of context, anyway, I'm all over the place now. <laughs> so I know I asked a good question, but triggers multiple, get multiple trains of thought firing. So what about you and your brother are both super entrepreneurial people. You're both incredibly entrepreneurial thinkers. Where did that come from? Do you think that's nature or do you think some of that is environmental from the way that you were educated? Man, I, I true answer is I, I don't really know, but I can speculate a little bit. So, you know, my dad was an accountant that worked for a large company, but he was like, kind of trying to get his own thing going on the side and had a goal to start his own, you know, accountancy within the next couple of years. So like evidence I have there, he was somewhat entrepreneurial, I guess. Not super, but somewhat. My brother was always entrepreneurial. Like he read Rich Dad, Poor Dad when he was like 14, 15 or something like that. And he had like spreadsheets of his net worth. And I remember like one time his car broke down and he had to get it fixed. And I remember he was in his bedroom and I heard him slam the desk. And I was like, what's wrong? And he's like, my net worth just dropped by $600 because he had this car. Like he had this stuff calculated. I was not like that at that age by any means, right? Like I was hardworking and like up for whatever, but like he was thinking very early, you know, very early got into buying houses and trying to flip them or rent them. Um, so I don't know if he was just wired that way. For me, looking back, I can see I was I was more entrepreneurial than I realized, but I just didn't have a word for it or context for it. I didn't think of myself that way. I just knew I wanted to do work that I didn't hate and that I found interesting. I really wanted to do things that I enjoyed. And I just kind of like each step of my career did that. I didn't start my first company until like 12 years into my career. But when I look back, I had started like a couple different nonprofits. I was like, wherever I was, I was always like, doing something new on the side. Like if I'm at church, I'm starting like some new program at church. And like, I didn't get that until later. I'm like, oh yeah, okay. Those that's, that was entrepreneurship. I just didn't know it then. Um, so when I, when I think about what that is, like there's probably a nature component. I'm sure there is, or at least a component of what you see around you, like defines what you think is possible and normal. So, you know, Children of actors or athletes very commonly become actors and athletes. I don't think it's just because of gene pool or even just because of connections. I think it's because if you grow up and you just see that as normal, that's like within your option set. And you're like, yeah, I can do that. So it's very common for you to do that. If you grow up and you've never met anyone in your entire life who is an actor or an athlete, it's a far off thing that is not for you. And you, you assume that it's probably not possible for you. And that makes it less possible, right? So like growing up, we grew up around a lot of like, small e entrepreneurs, like small business owners in West Michigan, like worked for a lot of them. Both my brother and I worked for small businesses where like we worked very closely with the owner from the time we were teens. My brother worked at a bakery and the guy who ran the bakery, he would like tell him about the, the profit and loss every day and the finance, the cost structure, whatever. We worked for a guy who had a cable company and ran the cables and we were doing the invoicing and we were doing the, like we were running the business in a way. So we were around business owners who were like 
entrepreneurial in the very sort of narrowly defined way, like small business, kind of like local, you know, landscaper, construction company type of stuff that normalized us to that as a possible option, I think. And my brother and I started our first company together. I was like 19 and he was 21, um, doing something very similar, like a service company, installing telephone, telephone cables and stuff. So I saw that as possible, but I was never exposed to until years later, like big thinking, like the kind of stuff that comes out of Silicon Valley, which is like both a lot of it's just hype and bullshit, but a lot of it's awesome too. Like, I wish you could combine the Midwestern practical grounded work ethic with the Bay area insane. Like I'm going to build a colony on the moon and everybody takes you seriously. They're like, Oh, cool. My friend's working on that too. Right. Whereas like where I came from, people would be like, you're an idiot. What are you talking about? Right. Um, but then again, in Silicon Valley, you can be like, I'm going to build a colony on the moon. And I've been doing nothing but asking people for money for three years. And I haven't done, I haven't built a single thing and I have no customers. Whereas in the Midwest, it's like, I have a landscape company. That means I have a customer. I have a bunch of customers. I'm actually doing things like every day, right? Like I'm actually earning money. So anyway, um, so I think I was exposed to entrepreneurship and that was kind of normalized. And I think as I described earlier, the independence that we had by necessity and the work ethic components really contributed to that. And then later in life, when I started to just my intellectual journey, get exposed to bigger and bigger ideas about like philosophy and like just uh, my own life goals and values. And like, what does it mean to like be free and run your own life and the freedom that comes theoretically, potentially with entrepreneurship and then being exposed to kind of people who are building really cool things in more of the tech startup-y type scene. Then my imagination opened up even more to see what was possible. Cause I had had ideas for like an alternative education thing way back when I was in college. I was like, it was called education revolution. And I was like, I want to have like a, basically what my idea was like, I want a college that actually teaches you valuable things that are, you know, then, then you get a job at the end of it or whatever. And that was about where it was. And I was kind of like, I don't know what to do with this. I guess I had to like raise money as a nonprofit. I just didn't know what to do with it. Cause I like the idea was there only later when I'd been exposed to much bigger types of entrepreneurship, did I realize I can go freaking build this thing. And now with the internet, being able to do all this stuff that it couldn't do back in the day, I could run this thing online. I could place people at startups. Like it took more exposure to the world. So very long-winded way of saying, I really don't know, but I think the basic values instilled in us, the independence we had, and then the exposure from a very young age to people who ran businesses all made contributed to that. Talk to me a little bit more about, I want to dig into Praxis a little bit and what you built there, because I think there's so much here that I want to talk about. I want to give like super high level overview. I think most people listening to this are familiar because I've talked about it before, but just like super high level overview of like what it is, where it came from, why you built it. But then I want to get more in the weeds on kind of how you thought about what you built into the the bones of this program and the structure of this program, because it applies to a lot of what we've already talked about here with like, you know, what's what's important for living a good life, what's important for setting somebody up to be able to be successful in the workforce as an entrepreneur, as an employee, um, how to make them, you know, self-sufficient. But can you give just like the super high level overview of how Praxis came to be like short, short version? I know you've talked about it elsewhere. Like if you, we don't have to go too far in the weeds, people can find more if they want to know, but just as like a preamble to the conversation that we're about to have the super like high level, whatever you think is important. Hannah, you know, I can't do short versions. <laughs> Especially about Praxis. I'll try. I'll try. Um, <laughs> 
I mean, you can go, you can talk, talk, talk as much as you want about this. I just don't want you to feel like you have no, to. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll try to, I'll try to keep it brief in terms of sort of like where it came from and the, the impetus behind it. So, you know, as I mentioned, when I was in college, it just was like, it just seemed like such a waste. And I'm like, nothing that I'm learning here is going to help me in my career. I was earning a lot of money working for an entrepreneur, turning around and paying for classes that just seemed totally irrelevant. Nobody, everybody hated them. The professors and the teachers alike both wished they couldn't be at class and they all cheered when class was canceled. I'm like, this is the stupidest thing ever. Why does everyone say I need this? Why, what is this going to do for me? Like I was trying to understand mechanistically what this thing was. What are people actually buying? What are they paying for? And I was believing what people say they're paying for. And what the college tells you, knowledge, a network, access to a better job. None of those things are true. Nobody's paying for any of that. You could have all that stuff for free. You could come just move to a college town, go sit in on classes. You could get the knowledge, you get the network, just hanging out there. You don't have to register and pay a dime. No, no professor is going to check if you've paid tuition before you sit in their class and ask them questions. You know, you'd like, if you really wanted to learn, you could do that. If you want the network, you could do that. The job part. Okay. Maybe we're onto something here. Maybe you need that on your resume for people to hire you. Why? What do, they, what do they see in that that tells them you're worth hiring? I was trying to like think through this. And I remember sitting in class once and, and seeing all these kids, a lot of them were like hungover and like, oh, like moaning and groaning. And I thought, we're all going to get the same degree. Like for me as like a, a major in political science. And I'm going to walk out of here and my resume is going to have a bullet point on it that screams to the world. I'm likely no worse than the other people in this room. Because they're all going to have that same bullet point. Like, how strong of a signal really is that? Oh, I went to Western Michigan University. Like, what does that mean? It means I'm no worse than all the other people who went to Western Michigan University. And I was like, that's a really low bar. It seems like there has to be a way to send a stronger signal about how good I am to an employer. And that really bugged me. And it kind of stuck with me. And I didn't really know what to do with it. But I did know that the learning component was bunk. We didn't learn almost anything useful or even interesting. And there was a few classes that were interesting philosophically because I'm a really philosophical guy, a handful of them. Uh, and, and we didn't like, there, there was just no connection to where I'm trying to go in life. So I, I thought about changing the curriculum and like, how does that apply? Can you make it more practical? Can you make it a way less money? It, was, it seemed like a massive waste of money, just a bunch of bloat. Um, but I didn't know what to do with that. So fast forward after I spend, you know, a decade in my career, and part of that time I was doing fundraising for a nonprofit and I was flying all over the country, meeting with a bunch of, you know, really wealthy individuals, most of whom were self-made, you know, entrepreneurs. And I always asked them like, what's the biggest constraint to growing your company? And you know what every single one of them said? They all said people. <laughs> they said, I can't find and hire enough good people. And I was like, well, you know, what about like early employees? Where do you find them? Where you? They're like, I don't know. When they come out of college, they don't know anything. And I'm like, really? Like, well, what, what do you look for on the resume? They're like, I don't know. Degrees don't really tell me anything. I don't know. Like they didn't know. They were just like, all I know, I don't have an answer. All I know is that there's a problem. That when someone graduates college and they come and want a job and whenever I hire them, they don't know anything. And that degree didn't seem to help them learn anything valuable to me. And I was like, interesting. There's a real problem here. More and more people are paying more and more money for these degrees, hoping that it makes them more valuable on the market. And the people that are hiring them are like, this isn't helping. So I had this idea, like how, how, like how low actually is the bar, right? Like what could you do in the shortest amount of time for the least amount of money possible that would send a stronger signal than a degree? That was really the question. And I was like, what if you took 
like a year or even less than a year, but what if you took a year and you placed young people, you gave young people a basic foundational education on things that were going to be relevant to making them effective at a job. And then you place them at that job working full time and you coach them along the way how to succeed at it. And you told the, the company, hey, look, you're going to pay them like really low wage, really low risk for you. You're going to bring in this person. We're going to train them up. You'll pay them like intern level wages for six months or whatever it is. They're going to learn on the job. And at the end of that six months, if they aren't a more attractive hire than a recent college graduate for your company or for another company, then I failed because that seemed really easy to achieve. Turns out it was really easy to achieve, <laughs> insanely easy to achieve. Like not building a company was easy, but the fact that six months of real world work at a company and a handful of educational, you know, boot camp sort of components and projects that you do send a signal that is infinitely more valuable than a degree. And if you go to a company and say, Hey, I worked six months in sales at this other company. Here's what I did there. Here's a project I made. Here's some things that I know. Can I get an interview? You know what they'll say most of the time? Absolutely. You know what they won't say most of the time? Where did you go to college? Almost never. They don't care anymore. As soon as you have one thing more interesting than a degree, the degree is irrelevant. Just like once you have a college degree, and this is another epiphany I had. When I had my degree on my resume, nobody asked about my high school. I don't have a high school diploma. I never took an ACT or SAT. Like I never technically graduated from high school because I just went into community college. And I always thought like, maybe this will be a problem on the job market because people were always like, oh, you need it. But because they saw that I had a college degree, they never asked about high school. And that triggered something in my brain. I was like, hmm, after I got my first job, once people saw that I had my first job, they never asked about my degree either. And I was like, interesting. So as soon as you get something more interesting than a degree, the degree is irrelevant. Well, what's more interesting to employers than a degree? It doesn't seem that hard. A little work experience and a little tangible proof of skills relevant to the job. BA in whatever with a three point whatever GPA that tells you something. I don't really know what it tells you, but it's something, I guess. But what tells you something better than that? Here, I built a landing page for you. Oh, you want a marketing job and you actually built a landing page? That's relevant to the job. That's better than BA in marketing, like instantly better. I mean, it's unbelievable. You show something like that even better if you have some experience. So I had that recognition and I was like, I have to build this because it seems absurd to me. It seems absurdly easy to beat the degree as a signal on the job market. And I bet I can do it in a year or less for zero net dollars to the student because they come in, they pay tuition for the program, but they get paid in their apprenticeship and we can, we can have them paid enough that it will cancel out what they pay in tuition. So one year, a net cost of zero, I am 100% confident that they're gonna enter the job market and they are gonna be able to outcompete everybody who has spent five years and $50,000 getting a degree. And guess what? That was 100% true. Completely true. Placement rates like 95, 96%. Kids are getting hired average of 50, 60 K a year starting salary after just one year, some of them 18, 19, 20, getting hired over people who have degrees, multiple degrees, uh, sometimes four or five years later, hiring those people as their manager hiring the kids that went to college while they went through Praxis and saying, hey, I'm now the sales manager and I'm going to hire you to work under me because uh, I have five years of experience now and all you have is five years of college, right? Like, so absolutely, I just felt like I have to try this because it seems so obvious to me. 
Um, and I, I just, uh, I told my wife and I was like, we got it. We got like, I can't, I can't sleep unless I try this. And she's like, all right, fine, let's do it. Let's go for it. So I quit my job, job that I really loved, put everything on my credit card at first until I got some customers going. Uh, and, uh, it, it was just, um, like, I mean, it was like really rough at first, just trying to convince people one at a time to take the risk, to take the chance on an unknown program to drop out of college or not go to college to come spend a year, you know, in this program, go work at some company, be placed in a city, maybe they've never been to before to go work for a company, uh, you know, go through the boot camp and all that stuff. But first class had six people, second class had eight people. And then it was like 14. And then it was like, and then we started doing them every month and got, you know, like, anyway, it just, it started that this success cases started to prove the point and we kind of got, got it going and got traction. Yeah. I remember the success stories. Like when I first found what you were doing, you were maybe I, when I f first encountered you, you were probably only a year in, but I remember it was like, it was small blips on my radar at first. Like somebody in my homeschooling world would send me a link to this Facebook page for this thing called Praxis. And I was like, business startups, like, it was, or startup apprenticeships rather. I was like, you know, I don't think I want to go into business. Haha, -ha, very funny plot twist. I have spent a lot of time working <laughs> in business, but I didn't know that at 17. Yeah, nobody does, uh, right? Like, I was like, eh, whatever, but like not going to college, cool. And then somebody else sent it to me and there were like more case studies now. And I was like, this is really cool. But you had some really compelling stories early on of people. Like you had a couple of people who were, you know, 17, I think, who'd gone through the program and were working in sales roles and were, you know, crushing it. Um, and once, once you have that proof, it becomes so much easier to convince people. And I think that's a huge part of why the tides of the conversation have changed so much. And I think you played a big role in that changing sentiment of around going to college, because once you have the stories of people who've done it, it's so much less scary to take the leap. But one of the things I want to dive into is you talked about the practical side of things. Like, you know, a hiring manager is going to pay attention if you can prove that you've done the types of things that you would do on the job. Like that's pretty intuitive. That's a pretty straightforward thing to kind of like logically break down. It's like, okay, I think I maybe want to go into marketing. So if I have some experience on my resume or in my portfolio running Facebook ads, I've built a landing page. I understand the basics of graphic design. Maybe I understand how like the Instagram algorithm works, like whatever angles of marketing you're interested in. If you've done some of this, it's pretty easy to reverse engineer what success is going to look like by just looking at what people do on the job that you're trying to land. But it's slightly less intuitive to think about all of the soft skills and the intellectual stuff that you need to understand in order to be successful in the real world. And this is one of the things that I think you did a great job of, but also this is part of what caught my attention with Praxis when I first discovered it, because again, like I didn't, I thought startup sounded super boring. Uh, I, I, I hadn't learned yet all that I was missing out on. Um, but I was very intrigued by the more soft skills slash sort of like the quote unquote liberal arts type topics that you guys were talking about because I was just a really intellectual or like academic kid. So in high school, I loved reading the classics and studying medieval history and literature. And so the elements of what you guys were talking about that were more liberal arts infused were very interesting to me. And so that's where my attention went. But then, you know, as I got more 
involved in what you were doing and actually started working with you guys, it started to entrust me in a different way. The, the, the logic of the thought process behind discerning what's actually important for somebody to learn if you're trying to get them a job at a startup. Like if you start thinking about landing somebody a sales role, you start to get very hyper-focused on the practical. It's like, well, you just need to learn how to make a lot of cold calls and maybe use a CRM. But there's, I think this is one of the things that a lot of other boot camps and programs really miss is they just hyper-focus on the practical. And life isn't just about the practical. You need some underlying context and some underlying skills. And I remember talking to you about this early on in my stint with the Praxis Education Program about you'd talk to business owners who would have a hard time communicating with their their employees, their young employees, because they just had, they didn't have intellectual substance. Like you have to be able to hold a conversation and carry some weight in that arena in order to be successful professionally. And one of the things that surprised me so much, go, moving into the startup world, meeting other business owners, talking to people who are entrepreneurial, it kind of shocked me how intellectually deep a lot of these people are. Like it wasn't intuitive to me. And my worldview, for some reason as a homeschooler, I don't really know where this came from, but my worldview was that there are like the really academic intellectual people, and then there are like the super practical nitty-gritty, the, the dirty, you know, the dirty really merchant class. <laughs> yeah, kind of. Like I don't know where this came from, but I kind of saw these two things as really separate. And then like, I thought I was kind of weird for being interested in both because they're very, like the way we learn about them in school, they're very yep. segmented out. They're like two totally different classes. There's like, you know, the white collar and the blue collar or whatever. Yeah. Um, but then I started meeting all of these entrepreneurial people and the one consistent thread among all of them besides entrepreneurial aptitude was their ability to have deep intellectual, intelligent conversations about really weird niche things that had nothing to do with the areas that they were working in. And that tended to be like somehow nested under the umbrella of what we academically consider to be the liberal arts. They were super nerdy about philosophy or super nerdy about economics, or they knew a ton about like science fiction literature and they could talk about it all day, or they knew a ton about the history of their city or whatever. And that connection felt very counterintuitive to me coming into the professional world. I was like, I don't understand why this is, but I also didn't understand like how you draw that observation into a curriculum designed to help people become that. Because in practice, like, you know, you're helping kids land their first real startup job, but a lot of these people, like they have to have a lot of hustle they have to be a go-getter in order to do a program like this in the first place. So a lot of these people probably were on the trajectory to be business owners themselves someday. And, you know, we're many years out of the first classes coming through Praxis now. And many of these people are building companies and doing their own thing. So they already kind of had the propensity to be builders, not just followers. But somehow you managed to distill down into the curriculum some of these more like liberal arts, impractical, why would you ever need to learn this if you're just going to go like do things in the real world type subject? And you did a really good job of it. And obviously, you know, the curriculum changed many, many times over as you were figuring out what worked and what didn't. 
but I want you to talk a little bit more about how you thought about drawing in things like economics and philosophy, why you thought that was important. Maybe your hypothesis too on like why this is a common thread among business owners. I'd love to hear your take on that. Um, And like what you actually think is important. Like if someone's kind of thinking about, I want to be successful in the world in this way. I want to take the the road less traveled by. I know I need to learn the practical stuff but maybe not only the practical stuff, like there are other things that are important too. I'd like to hear you speak to that a little bit. Yeah. You know, at, at bottom, like I feel like any company, if it's scratching the founder's itch, that's usually where it comes from. And that usually is actually a great place to start. Um, if it's something that you know, well, so like, I'm just a really philosophically inclined guy. I find all that stuff really interesting. I spent, I mean, that's how I came to, even as I explained my idea, my understanding of what is the college degree. That's like a very theoretical way to look at it. It's the signaling theory, the role of costly signals in the economy. And like I was studying economics and I was thinking about these things. And when I say studying, I mean like on my own, just out of my, my interest in these things and all these books behind me. So for me, I was like, I was staying up till two in the morning all throughout my teens and college years and all these things, talking to my buddies about quantum physics and philosophy and whatever else, because I like that kind of stuff. And I felt like at college, it was like, it was kind of like the worst of both worlds. Almost never would we have really good philosophical discussions. One or two classes, I had that. And very few of the students cared. One or two students in a class and, and an occasional professor. So you weren't really getting that like liberal arts part in a really compelling, stimulating way but then you weren't getting anything that was of practical value for the workplace either. And it was like this weird, like, well, I'm not getting either of these things. So I was learning on the job through experience, the things that were valuable for sort of my career, but then my own intellectual curiosity, I'm diving into all these ideas. And I always tried to pick jobs where like, I felt like the role of ideas was fairly easy to see connected to those jobs. So first I tried working in politics and realized they don't care about ideas either. Uh, big crushing disappointment, but hey, you learn. Nobody ever go into politics. It will destroy your soul. It's not worth it. And then I was working in like nonprofits, doing educational type stuff and working actually associated with universities, like higher education system and like research and this kind of stuff. And realizing a lot of the limitations there of, to your point, this this notion of like the dirty merchant class, that's like insecure academics going all the way back to ancient Greece, frankly. And like, I love a lot of the ancient Greek stuff, but this idea of like the people who are like, you know, just engaging in barter and exchange are somehow these just like idiot, idiot people who are just shallow and greedy and they don't have an appreciation for the higher things. When I went into fundraising, I was blown away. These entrepreneurs I'm meeting with, they were way more intellectually curious than almost anybody I had met in academia or in the typical workforce, the difference between business owners and like entrepreneurs doing things and just a person who's like showing up to clock in is that, is that they're thinking philosophically, they're systems thinkers, they're asking questions, they're relentlessly curious and interested in how everything works. You ask them the stories about how their businesses came about. They're driving a tomato truck and dropping off the tomatoes and looking at the tomatoes get dumped in and go up a conveyor belt into the factory and thinking, I wonder how much energy it takes to fight against gravity and lift those tomatoes up that conveyor belt. What if you built the factory at the bottom of a hill and you just dumped the tomatoes and you let it gravity feed it? I wonder if you'd save money. How much would you save? This guy goes on to found what is now one of the biggest tomato processing plants in the world. That's literally the story of how, why was he asking that question when a lot of other people driving those trucks are not? 
because he's a curious philosophical person. He's, he's always asking questions and reading books and studying. I talked to these guys that were like stacks of books about American history, super obsessed with it, super interested in it. And I'm raising money for this nonprofit. And I found that I could do a really phenomenal job raising money because I was also very intellectually curious. And so I would talk with these people and I wouldn't talk about, here's programs we're running, you should give us money. I would engage with them on curiosities that I had or questions that they were interested in, intellectual stuff. And then after we met, I'd be like, hey, I came across this book about the economics of beehives. You might find this interesting given our conversation about how you like to watch anthills. Literally, this is a true thing that happened. I sent the guy a book, The Economics of Non-Human Societies by Gordon Tullock, which is back there. And he was like, oh, this is so fast. They liked me and wanted to meet with me more. And guess what? I was good at raising money because of this. And I was like, this is really interesting. These people are not only theoretically interested in ideas, but they're getting feedback from the real world. They're field testing them. One of them was like, I want an organization that doesn't have any bosses because I've read all these interesting books about decentralized economies and I want my entire company to be run this way. And it's literally run that way. And it's crazy. And he's like going through and learning all this stuff. And, it's and I contrasted that again, both to the like, go get a job, clock in, clock out. And the go into academia and just like live in the ivory tower. And I'm like, something's missing from both of those. That's where the name praxis comes from. Not only praxeology, which is the study of human action, but praxis is the combination of theory and practice. And they feed each other. Like one of, one of the earliest blog posts I wrote about how the praxis curriculum works is uh, how to play basketball well. And I use basketball as an analogy. When you want to go play basketball well, and you've never played before, you don't go start reading books about like the perfect elbow position and like all these, you know, sort of theoretical books about how to shoot a basketball. The first thing you do is go shoot a basketball. But after you've gotten in a bunch of reps, practice, practice, then you zoom out, then you do some theorizing. Then you watch game tape, you analyze your shot, you start to study and look for the higher level theories. Once you've gotten them, you apply them, go out and practice again. And it's like practice, practice theory, like in roughly in that ratio, right? And you always start with practice get some feedback, theorize about how to make it better, go back and practice again, rather than separating these two things where you're just like practice, 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 never think about what you're doing or the causal connections or just theorize, theorize, theorize and never go out and practice it. And I'm like, so as I started to come to this realization, that's where I was like, I have my own ideas about education and how education should work and how it could be better. These are theories, but I need to test them. I need to test them in the real world. I need to test them in a profit and loss environment where if I'm wrong, I will go out of business. And if I'm right, I will make money for myself. That's the incentive structure I want. That I think is a faster path to discovering whether your theories are true than just arguing and debating about them and publishing books about them and listening to people respond to those books. Like, let's go out and see. Let's go test it in the real world. And so I had that deeply in myself. And I, was, I thought about all, I have my bookshelf behind me here organized chronologically based on my intellectual journey. I think about my life as an arc where my intellectual journey and my career journey mirror each other. The things, the ideas I'm playing with and the things I'm doing in the real world, they feed each other back and forth, back and forth. Sometimes the ideas lead to the next step. Sometimes the step that I'm in lead to new ideas, but it's this process where they go in hand in hand. So when I put together the initial curriculum, it was like, look, let's just focus on History, economics, philosophy, and then like soft skills, like writing, speaking, things like that. And then like hard skills, like some basic technical skills you'll need, like how to build a website and things like that. Um, that was kind of the initial curriculum. 
Interestingly enough, that turned out to be a little bit too top down, a little bit too academic. What ended up being better, and it was like, first you studied those things, then you studied the practical things, then you went to your apprenticeship. What ended up being better was to kind of make the whole thing geared around who are you, what are your interests, and then given those interests, what are some of the roles that we have available to apprentice in that would be a good fit for you? And then given those roles, what would you need to have in order to win one of those apprenticeship roles? Given what you need to have, let's put together a series of projects to get there. And what happened along the way is those projects involve both the very practical, I need to know how to build a landing page, and the much more robust, I need to know how to show up every day and do something for 30 days in a row, even when I don't feel like it. And that turns out to be a very philosophical question. Why am I struggling with motivation? What would motivate me? And then you, then it like backs you into these higher level discussions and these higher level kind of learnings. And we've got all this kind of support and curriculum and discussions and all this stuff around that. And so really, again, marrying those things, even, even me from the initial, I had such a schooled mindset. It was like theoretical stuff, then practical stuff, and then the real world. And it was like, that was actually a bad structure. It's much better to be like goals, what can I do to achieve it? What's keeping me from achieving it? What's keeping me from achieving it is a combination of bad ideas and bad tactics and experiences. So I need to work on both of those simultaneously and they feed each other. And so I'm so, the thing I'm the most proud about when I look at the 600 plus Praxians that are out there and counting all the time, when you run across someone who's in Praxis or who went through Praxis, you always know a Praxis person. You always know it. And it's not just because of the like work ethic and they're out there busy, busy doing their job. It's because they're thinkers. They ask good questions. They're curious. Like that component, it's a combination of attracting those types of people as well as cultivating those types of people. Some combination of those things I think has really stuck. And that's probably the thing I'm most proud of because that can go with you anywhere. Like someone who learns how to do a certain thing for a certain job, that's great. That's good. Someone who learns how to be an interesting, curious person, you can point that in any direction at any job or at any goal you have. So how do you cultivate that? I think this is a, I know that's a very open-ended question. I will add some context to it. I imagine that a number of parents are listening to this and are thinking, wow, that sounds like a really great goal to have with my kids. I want them to be curious question askers, you know, answer seekers, problem solvers, uh, unafraid of looking at things and going, why are they the way that they are? I also imagine, because I know a lot of people listen to this who don't have kids, they're maybe aspiring parents, or maybe they're just interested in how they think about their own education. And they're like, wow, this sounds really cool. I would like to cultivate more of this in myself. You know, you talked a little bit about the structure of how you did this in the Praxis curriculum, and maybe we can get a little nitty, more nitty gritty in the weeds there, or, and this may make more sense depending on how, where you want to take this and answering this question. What, like, how do you think about that a little more philosophically? like how you cultivate that in a human, because some of it's like, there's a nature component to it too. Like some people are just naturally more curious, but there's definitely a nurture component. How do you think about yeah, that? Yeah. I definitely got better at it when I started to observe more and more people who were really good at that, seeming to enjoy themselves more and do better. And the enjoy themselves more part probably even came first. Cause it's like, you can see people that get up at four every morning and eat 12 eggs, you know, raw eggs and, and do better. And you can be like, eh, not worth it. Right. 
like do better financially or something like that. But someone who's like really enjoying themselves. And like, so my, my good friend, my, my best friend, TK Coleman, he, uh, he helped build the curriculum with me and, and, you know, was part of Praxis, um, for the first, you know, five, six years there. He's incredible at this. He's just relentlessly curious. And I just would watch him and I'd watch other people that just everything's interesting to them. And they just ask questions and they pursue their interests, no matter how random it may seem. Like I call TK and be like, what have you been reading lately? And he's like, oh, I've been super into reading about mimes. I'm like, mimes? Like people that, you know, like, or like ventriloquism. Yeah, like ventriloquism. And I'm like, how would you come across that? And it was like some random thing got him. And he spent like weeks reading books about ventriloquism. He didn't want to become a ventriloquist. He, he didn't like go to ventriloquy shows and find them. Inter- he just thought it was a fascinating concept and wanted to like learn everything he could about it and what was the philosophy behind it. And so he did. Whereas I would just have a passing thought. It's kind of a weird thing to pretend like a dummy is talking instead of you. Like, I wonder where that started. And then I would just let the thought go by instead of stopping and saying, well, hold on a second. I remember my mom was really good at this growing up. We'd be like, mom, why is this? And she'd be like, I don't know. Let's look it up. Back then we didn't have an internet. So we would literally get out like an encyclopedia and we'd always be like, we'd always roll our eyes. Oh, mom, you always want to look everything up. You always, uh, but it stuck with me. Like that concept of if you have a question, go chase it down. And like, so I have tried to do this with my kids and be deliberate. And they do the same thing I did to my mom to my face. They're like, you're such a nerd. Oh my gosh, who cares? So boring. But I know better because I went through it myself. I know that it's, that it's cultivating, it's normalizing to them. So even things like if we're in a coffee shop, I'll look around and I'll have the thought, I wonder if this place is making any money. And instead of stopping there, I'll be like, ask more questions, Isaac. So I'll be asking them to myself. And now I'll try to ask them if my, my kids are, I'll be like, kids, how much do you think they're paying uh, these people to work here? Okay. Uh, how much do you think they pay in rent? All right. How much do you think they have to pay for supplies? Okay, great. So if we break that down, like, what do you think they're paying per month for everything? All right. How much is it? Char- how much are they charging for coffee and a cookie? Great. How many cookies and cups of coffee do they have to sell per month to make money? And, and my kids will not play along most of the time. They'll just be like, Ugh. but I'll keep doing that. Right. And it's like just demonstrating an approach to life that finds these questions interesting and worth pursuing. One, it makes you, life is way more fun and just full of enchantment. It's utterly full of enchantment. When GK Chesterton said like, we're not, we're not struggling for lack of wonder, but for or lack of wonders, but for lack of wonder and the sense of wonder, like everything becomes interesting, right? Like, what is, what is that ant doing? Why would an ant possibly do that? Let's look at this ant. Why is it going this way instead of this way? What's going on with it? Is something wrong with it? And following those questions, maybe you look it up, maybe you Google it, maybe you ask a friend, maybe you just keep thinking about it. Maybe you come up with theories, maybe you write a story about the ant, but like chasing those questions, being interested, life gets more interesting and fun. You become more interesting to others. Interested people are interesting people. You're never bored and you're never boring to anyone else. And that makes every conversation easier. People want to be around you. You get more connections and network and things in life. You become a better thinker, especially if you do practices like force yourself to blog every day for 30 days this is the greatest practice in the world. It's available to everyone. Uh, that alone, you'll be like, I have to write something every single day. What am I going to write? It forces you to be like, well, I got to think of something. You'll scan the room. Like, There's my fan fans. I wonder what fan fans, what are Fans, why does wind make me colder even though the temperature is not dropping? Why would blowing wind on me make me colder? I don't know. Let me literally just write the question out. And suddenly your brain starts like the gears start un, 
crustifying and things start moving in there that were just calcified and like the world becomes a little different. You become a little bit more engaged in everything. So I, I like, it really starts with just that saying, can I ask more questions? Can I follow those questions further? Can I be more interesting? Every time my kid asks me a question, let's pursue it a little more. Let's go on Amazon and buy a book about it. Let's sit down and try to read it. They'll probably tune out. They'll probably not like it. But even if I buy the book and it sits there and we never read it, guess what they take away from that? I grew up in an environment where questions were encouraged and my parents would even invest in books to try to help me answer those questions. That's doing something in them. It's changing the way they see the world instead of just a, I don't know, don't ask me, or this is what the teacher or the authority said. That's the answer. End of discussion, right? Like try to cultivate the questions and I'm telling you that just unlocks things uh, in your own mind first and then in the minds of your kids or those around you that will like just pay dividends forever. And having the book available to you, because I do this for myself too. This is a habit that I think I picked this up from Tim Shermack, who I remember he said at one point, like whenever he sees a book that he wants to read, he just orders Always. it. He has an unlimited I have book, an unlimited budget, book and budget and I adopted yeah. that immediately. Yeah. Unlimited book budget. Well, I was nomading for a while and it was hard. Yeah. But now that I'm like semi-settled, Every time I see a book I want, I order it. I don't always read them. Yeah. I often don't read them right away. It's like, I'll probably read this book in two years. But having it in my physical space where I can see it, and I it reminds me of the question, completely transforms the nature of questions from this like sort of latent passing thing that you can either latch onto or not. Like I would have forgotten I was curious about the thing if I hadn't ordered the book. Having it in my space, every time I see it, I am reminded of the question and the reason I found it interesting. And even if I'm not ready to invest in going down the rabbit hole yet, it keeps it front of mind, which sometimes that's enough. Yeah. Like sometimes the the thought just getting triggered again and again leads me down rabbit holes I wouldn't have gone down otherwise. So I'm a huge proponent of having the books in the space available. And you can take the pressure off yourself of this schooled approach of like, I must take a class. I must read a book, start to finish. I must get a sort like I had a email in my inbox months ago, probably six months ago, or even longer from, um, uh, Derek Sivers. Uh, I subscribed to him. He's like, I don't even know where I first came across him. I usually don't read his emails. I usually don't have time. Every once in a while I open them. I open one, I scanned it. And he just had a little thing that was like interesting books I've read. And one of the books listed was called How Buildings Learn. And it was like a really interesting book about like buildings as changeable dynamic spaces instead of something set in stone, so to speak, whatever. And I was like, that's an interesting concept. And it was similar to some books I'd read years ago by an architect named Christopher Alexander. And I was like, that's kind of cool. I never heard of that book. Click on it. I go buy it on Amazon. It was like 15 bucks. Shows up, sits there for six months. And my kids are like, what is this book? Why would you order this book? Are you interested in architecture? I'm like, no, oh, it just sounded interesting to me. I haven't gotten around to reading it yet. My daughter like randomly picked it up one night, started scanning through it. It was like, I don't really understand most of this. A little bit interesting. And I was like, oh, I want to read that. So I pick it up one day and I read like literally like five pages of it. But I underline a couple things. And I was like, that was a really interesting concept. Put the book away. We pack it up. We're moving. It gets packed up later. I'm writing an email newsletter for Partner Hacker, my current or current previous company. It just rebranded. But, and I had this, this, like, oh, this is similar to a concept in How Buildings Learn that I remember reading, even though I only read five pages, this thing in software that I just read about. And I just wrote a little blurb about it. Someone else responded, emailed me about that and said, oh, that was really interesting. And they started talking about a related concept, which later came up in a podcast conversation that ended up having somebody like, oh, I love your podcast. This is my favorite episode. And I can't even remember where this ends. The point is it doesn't end 
right? The point is, I didn't have to actually read. I didn't read the whole book. I still don't really know what all is in there. I want to read it. I hope to. Maybe I will someday. But I saw it. It was interesting. It was curious to me. I jumped on it. I wasn't afraid to take the little bit that I did glean from it and just talk about it and do what I call learning out loud. I didn't present myself as an expert. I didn't pretend that I read the whole book. I was just like, here's a concept from this book that was kind of interesting to me. And it seems similar to this other concept. I don't know. What do you think? Somebody was like, hey, here's what I think. That turned into something else, right? And like, without having done that, there were several conversations and relationships that never would have happened. So take the stress off yourself that like, you have to do things in a really formal way. You have to like take the class, finish the whole book, do it. Just as TK likes to say, like recklessly and irresponsibly follow your interests. That was a long rant. And I know we got to wrap it up. I got a hard stop coming. Do you have like, one one or two like rapid fire things or anything you want to wrap it on. Well, I just want to, I want to give you a chance to plug where people can find you from here. Um, because you've, you've created a prolific, you prolifically created content for many years. You have a lot of things in different places on the internet. You have a podcast of your own, you have your blog. Um, you've been prolifically writing for other publications. You have books, where would you send people next yeah, I mean, to find more of your work? So anybody listening to this podcast, most likely, if you just go to isaacmorehouse.com, it's probably the best place. You can find all my books there, all the various podcasts I've done over the years. In my opinion, almost all that stuff is pretty evergreen. It's pretty like first principles. So it's relevant all the time. Currently, for the last year and a half, I started a company in a completely different space with a friend of mine working in the B2B software space. Um, and so I spend almost all of my time, uh, on LinkedIn and writing content for a newsletter that is very much about, um, partnerships in B2B software, uh, you know, world and things that are, you know, at least seemingly to me, they're all related to me. They're all connected and they're all connected to my values. It all makes sense to me, but to the outside world seems totally unrelated to this stuff here that I spent most of my career working on in the early career and education space. So for most of you, that stuff's not going to be interesting or relevant. I would just say go to isaacmorehouse.com. I'm on Twitter as well. I'm just not super active uh, there and I'm not posting a lot on my blog, but I do from time to time. And there's a lot of, uh, again, evergreen content there. And, and you can email me by the way, anytime, isaacmorehouse at gmail.com. Highly recommend. That's how I met you. So absolutely, <laughs> it pays off. Thank you so much for taking the time for this. This has been really fun. Right, thanks for having me on, Hannah. These are like the most fun, easy types of conversations. Interesting people that I know that I've worked with. Huge shout out to you, Hannah, for boldly coming and being like, I want to work for Praxis. And you were amazing. You did so amazing to have. You're a big part of building that, building the, the company, the culture there, all the outcomes that we've talked about here. And it's really, really exciting to see you going out there in the world and spreading the message, taking, taking the mantle and going to the next level in the next generation. So keep it up. Take care. All right. That's a wrap for this week. Thank you so much for being here. If you're listening on Spotify or Apple, please leave a five-star rating. Ratings are how this show gets discovered by other people and it helps me bring in better guests. And no matter where you're listening, please like and subscribe to the show to make sure you don't miss a future episode. That's all for this week. Thank you so much for being here. I'll see you next week.